0: Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. ChooseWood.com.
1: What Josh Hawley is arguing here is that because um, these social media giants may have a political perspective and potentially a political end in mind, that should be considered a campaign contribution.
2: Now it is worth mentioning that KSDK asked the state board that oversees licenses whether seeing patients is a requirement, and they said no. But they do require physicians to complete 50 hours of continuing education every two years, so this might go to that.
3: I think they should be able to send out their Christmas card without having to worry too much about wow, it. Wow, Bill
2: takes the side of the McCluskeys. I never thought this would happen. <laughs> but, I mean, you do, you make a good point there. They're not trying to make money off of this.
4: When the truth is, that company just hasn't participated with DoorDash, and they're not part of their delivery system at all. And so that's incredibly deceptive, and I think there is a good case here.
2: Our monthly legal roundtable often touches on a bit of everything politics, business, crime, civil rights. All of those things are fair game for discussion because they all tie into the law. And that makes the roundtable day among my favorites at St. Louis on the Air.
1: I'm Laura Hamden, producer for St. Louis on the Air. Before today's episode, I want to take a moment to say thank you for listening. Our team works hard to provide nuance on the news that shapes your life and your community. We wouldn't be able to do this without your support. The money you give to St. Louis Public Radio helps fund our podcast. Please go to stlpr.org donate and give an amount that works for you. Your contribution along with that of your neighbors is what fuels St. Louis on the air. We're really grateful. Thank you for your support.
2: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. National politics is pretty much the name of the game for the next week. It's hard to pay attention to anything other than Biden versus Trump and all the squabbles that accompany the final stretch. But at heart, all politics really are local. And here in Missouri, we're represented by Josh Hawley. The state's junior senator recently questioned whether social media outlets like Facebook and Twitter have a right to suppress stories. At issue in Hawley's recent crusade was a New York Post story about Hunter Biden and payments he received from a Ukrainian energy firm. Twitter stopped users from sharing the story, while Facebook limited its distribution while it could do some fact checking. And senators, including Hawley, called for the social media Companies to be investigated. Now, does that mean trouble for St. Louis native Jack Dorsey, who's the CEO and founder of Twitter, or is Holly just trying to score some political points? Well, joining me to talk about it today is our legal roundtable. First up is Bill Fryvogel. He's a professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. Bill, welcome back. Hi. And we're also joined today by Nicole Garofsky. She's a former prosecutor. She's now in private practice at Garofsky Law. Nicole, welcome. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, today we're joined by David Rowland. He's the director of litigation at the Freedom Center of Missouri. David, welcome.
1: Thanks, Sarah. It's always a pleasure to be on.
2: So, Bill, I want to start with you. Josh Hawley accused Twitter and Facebook of, quote, censoring the core political speech of ordinary Americans. Does he have a point there?
3: Uh, Not a very good point. Uh, You know, the answer, I think, I I do think uh, Dorsey is in trouble. And I do think that that Hawley's trying to score political points. I mean, the reason I say he doesn't, that that, that Hawley doesn't have a very good legal point is that uh, in the, you know, the First Amendment protects against government censorship, not against Facebook, Google, um, Twitter. Uh, and, uh, uh, so I, you know, I, I, think from a, you know, constitutional point of view, he doesn't have a very good, uh, case. Then there's something called section 230 of the communications decency act in shorthand. What it does is it says that the Googles and Facebooks and other internet, uh, providers can't be sued for the third, for what third parties post on their sites. Mm-hmm. And so that gives them, uh, so they can't be sued for liable or something. Uh, and they also have complete freedom to take down anything that they find objectionable. Uh, and um, you know i do I do think that Jack Dorsey uh, ran into trouble on that uh, New York Post uh, story on the, these found uh, documents supposedly claiming that Hunter Biden uh, was making millions uh, on contacts in Ukraine. and and elsewhere, and that uh, Joe Biden was was uh, profiting. I mean that there hasn't been any corroboration of that New York Post story, uh, and that was one of the reasons that Twitter took it down, and Facebook also uh, took it down originally. Uh, Twitter had, had Jack Dorsey had a um, a policy that any material that was obtained through hacking would not be. Allowed to be posted on Twitter. Well, they they realize that that's too broad a policy. I mean, uh, there's all sorts of stories that are there are truthful stories that are based, uh, you know, upon leaked documents, for example. Mm-hmm. And so you know, you don't want to have something that's that that's that broad. Uh, so they you know they backed off uh, from from that. Uh, but you know they as a matter of fact they are all testifying right now. To Congress this morning. Uh, uh, the the Republicans uh, called hearings because I think they wanted to make uh, the political point that conservatives are being uh, censored by the social media giants. And, and uh, so when try, you say yeah.
2: Jack Dorsey's in trouble, you don't mean that maybe legally he crossed a line here. You're saying this is some trouble business-wise.
3: Yeah, political, you know, political trouble. He looks mm-hmm. like, I mean, here, you know, these social media companies, Facebook and Twitter, You know all make a point of we're all for you know democratic free speech and so you know whenever they then start uh censoring people it's uh, a problem for them it's a it's a problem for them but then again it's also a problem for them if they allow their platforms to be used by uh you know russian agents to you know plant fake news in the united states which so they're you know very alert uh, to for both of those things. Zuckerberg said this morning that they have spent $3 billion and have 35,000 people uh, uh, who are trying to fact check.
2: Dave Roland, I'd love to get your take on this situation. Do you agree with Bill's assessment here?
1: Um, yes and no. Uh, so I think that what we've got here is uh, what should be a very simple situation that um, the government has made a lot more complex. So The simple aspect of it is that under the First Amendment, people have a freedom to express themselves, share information with others if they want to. Um, The flip side of that is that uh, the government also cannot force someone to share information or express an idea that they don't want to. That's called compelled speech. Um, So these are two very simple principles that you would think mean that A a private company like Twitter, like Facebook or any other social media giant, um, they're allowed to let people share ideas and the government can't stop them from letting people share ideas. But at the same time, because they're private entities, uh, if they choose not to share certain ideas or, or allow certain ideas to be shared, the government can't force them to share those ideas, okay? Because that would be compelled speech. The problem that we've got is that um, the level of governmental regulation when it comes to campaign finance uh, might indeed be applicable here um, because uh, the election authorities and the the ethics commissions, uh, both at the state and federal level, have tended to take a very broad view of what constitutes a campaign contribution. Hmm. And so what what Josh Hawley is arguing here is that because um, these social media giants may have a political perspective and potentially a political end in mind in deciding what speech they're going to allow and what speech they're not going to allow, that Hmm. should be considered a campaign contribution. Um, I'm not going to rule out that the courts might indeed agree that that would violate the law or at least that it would constitute a a contribution within the meaning of the law. Um, I don't know that that's likely, but it's certainly possible. But I think the follow up question then is, is it constitutional for uh, the government to discipline or regulate the social media giants because they've made this decision? I ideally, the answer would be no, ideally, the answer would be no, the government does not get to dictate what gets said uh, or not said in the private sphere. Um, but, but who knows, I mean, the, the way that the courts are currently composed, it is not completely out of the question that a court could say yes, it's a campaign contribution to selectively permit sharing of information. And no, the First Amendment doesn't protect you because you serve uh, a a public function, even if you're a private company.
2: Nicole, I know you were hoping to hop in there. Uh, What are your thoughts on that analysis?
4: Yeah, I like to try to simplify if I can. And, you know, in the legal world, we have a a saying, it's an argument only lawyers can love. I'm going to say on this one, it's an argument only politicians can love. I mean, when when I read Holly's letter to the Federal Election Commission saying, you know, um, time on Twitter and Facebook is a thing of value, and so um, by denying people from posting, you know, these articles, they're denying a thing of value. That is, um, I would say, twisting the law so far that it's nonsensical. Um, I don't think that is makes any sense at all. Um, you would have to go so far to say that, you, to, you know, to force Facebook and Twitter, you know, to allow non-factual events to happen on their platforms. Nicole, it's let me, gone, um, right? I think you're making a yeah. great
2: point there, and certainly I'm, I'm skeptical that the courts could rule this way, but, but Dave, you sure. said this, this could happen. You have an
1: example. Yeah, so I was actually in front of the Missouri Ethics Commission last week with a situation where um, there was an alleged campaign contribution that had been made, and uh, the alleged contributor had no idea. They, uh, basically, it was a company uh, that provided a work truck to an employee who later decided to run for office. And so the guy put a campaign sign in the bed of his truck, and two years later, the opponent uh, who that he beat in the election Files a complaint with the Ethics Commission and says this is an illegal campaign contribution that he put a sign in a truck owned by his employer. Um, and the Ethics Commission upheld it. They said, yes, that's an illegal con- uh, campaign contribution. So and, and they acknowledged the company had no idea um, that the employee was going to do this. There was no intent to benefit the campaign. Nevertheless, they, they determined that it was a contribution. So wow. even though it may seem absurd... Um, there can be regulatory bodies that decide that this violates the law
2: and as you were saying with the current composition of judges there's some judges right. here that might share Josh Hawley's views Bill Freivogel
3: well I think I, I have to just disagree with David and I don't think his example really uh, supports Josh Hawley's fantasy uh, I think Nicole is right I mean th- it to, to think that a uh, that a Twitter or, or a Facebook exercising, it's clear legal prerogatives under Section two thirty of the Communications Decency Act to remove uh, material that it believes to be uh, possibly fabricated to, to 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 say that that is a campaign contribution is 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 a fight of fantasy
2: nicole and I, 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 I kind don't of... even
3: think today's I don't even think today's uh, you know judges would 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 agree with that uh, I, yeah.
2: The idea of trying to put a value on this, if this ends up being an in kind campaign contribution, boy, I don't even want to think about the calculations involved in that. But, Nicole, I also did cut in as you were making a point. Uh, beyond that, um, do you feel like Holly is just uh, there's nothing to this, or do you see a First Amendment issue here?
4: Yeah, I think there's nothing to this. I mean, I thought Chuck Hatfield actually had a great comment in response on Twitter to Josh Hawley, because what he said was, well, then when is Fox News going to uh, account for all of their free marketing that they have given to conservative candidates through the years? It's just nonsensical. You can't quantify it. It's it's, as I said, an argument only a politician can love. Well,
2: it'll be very interesting to see if Congress comes to the same conclusion. They may not agree with our legal roundtable, and boy, that doesn't mean our legal roundtable is wrong. Um, I do <laughs> want to encourage you if you're listening to this conversation today and you have a question or you're enjoying these legal arguments and, and want to tease them out, you're welcome to join us. You can call us at 314 382 8255. That's 382 TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at STLpublicradio.org. And our legal roundtable today. Today is Nicole Gorovsky of Gorovsky Law, Dave Rowland of the Freedom Center of Missouri, and Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation and continue our roundtable. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
0: Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.
2: Welcome back. Today, we're joined by our legal roundtable, and that includes Bill Freivogel. He's a professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. And on today's show, which is also soon to be a podcast, we're joined by our legal roundtable that includes Bill Freivogel, a professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, Nicole Garofsky, a former prosecutor now in private practice at Garofsky Law, and Dave Rowland, the director of litigation at the Freedom Center of Missouri. I want to move from national politics to local politics. Uh, St. Louis County Executive Sam Page fired Hazel Irby in August. She's a former county councilwoman, very loved in that role. She was serving as the county's Diversity director, and she complains that she was fired for complaining that the county was not following the ordinance that required minority inclusion in contracts. It was very soon after the paper trail showed she was complaining about this with the county executive that he fired her. Now, she was an at will employee, so does the county executive have the right to fire her if he chooses? Nicole Gorovsky, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on whether she might have a whistleblower case.
4: Yeah, so I think this one's going to be very special. Uh, fact-specific. So they're, I think, quibbling over whether or not she was hired um, with the intent of working on these, um, It's uh, I think, uh, um, a statute or an ordinance, I think, um, with the purpose of adding diversity in contracts, and whether or not she was supposed to be involved in that. She says she was. And if she was, then it's, it's quite possible she could have a whistleblower suit because she's saying um, they were failing to actually follow that ordinance in the bidding on contracts of um, sort of taking minority bids and, and giving them um, priority and things like that. If that wasn't her job, I'm not sure. I think that makes it a tougher case about whether or not she truly is a whistleblower because I'm not sure whether she had the access to know either way. So um, I think that's really um, going to be part of the issue in this case.
2: Now, we know that she was complaining about how the county was handling this. In order to have whistleblower status, would she had to have taken that complaint uh, to, say, the county council, somebody like that, or does she, just complaining to her boss, is that good enough to attain whistleblower status? Uh, Dave, any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I believe that Missouri case law suggests that um, as long as the complaint was made, even if it was made just to a boss rather than to some external organization or or person, um, that that is sufficient to trigger the whistleblowing statute. Hmm. Um, I'm also, I'm not sure, um, Nicole may know better than I do, but uh, I don't know that that it really makes a difference for the statute whether what she complained about was within her employment responsibilities or not. Um, So the the statute itself says that the government can't take disciplinary action against uh, an employee for disclosing information that reveals violations of laws, mismanagement, waste of public funds, etc. And at least I, I don't believe that the statute specifies that it has to be within that employee's work responsibilities. Um, so I think as long as Ms. Irby was raising these concerns, saying, hey look, you're violating the law, and that was the reason she was fired or, or uh, had this adverse action taken against her, um, it may well fall within the scope of the statute. She may have a case.
2: Nicole, do you, do you agree with what Dave is saying there? That, that that might not be as big a factor, even if it really does help the narrative, um, that it's not
4: legally essential? Yeah, I think Dave's right. I think the reason I was saying that that was important is because they're quibbling about whether or not she even knows the information that she's whistleblowing about. And so I think, like I said, that's going to come down to a very fact-specific issue and what's going on here. So speaking of
2: the facts in this case, it turns out that that, uh, former Councilwoman Irby's assistant, as she was serving in this job, is a former state representative named Courtney Curtis. Now the Post-Dispatch has reported that Curtis is apparently facing federal indictment that this is a guy who's in some legal trouble, and this is for campaign finance-related issues um, related to his time in Jefferson City. Uh, Bill Freivogel, does that kind of association change the narrative of her as as this valiant whistleblower going up against an administration that doesn't care about the law, or is that immaterial?
3: Well, I mean, I guess it makes a difference uh, on public impressions. Uh, I, I think that um, you, you know, the, uh, the the case against the assistant uh, doesn't in, involve you know her in any way. So I'm not sure that that really that really hurts her whistleblower uh, suit. Um, I, I, one thing I thought was um, was a little uh, it was interesting about the whistleblower suit, is that a lot of it is, uh, you know, she spends about half of it talking about how she really should have been, uh, she really should have been the county executive uh, because she was, you know, a senior person and that um, and that this is, you know, this is something that's, this, this whole uh, compliance with minority set-asides is something that was within her her purview uh, when it seems like Paige says it says it wasn't I mean I I think it I think her her complaint has the um, has the risk of looking like political sour grapes I mean it's even phrased hmm. yeah I mean it, 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 almost the entire the entire complaint is uh, seems to be political sour grapes so I, I think she's gonna have a little a little trouble winning it
2: so this this might be an elementary question, but I feel like there's a lot of misinformation out there um, with layman on who's allowed to get fired and for what reasons. Let's say she doesn't have a good whistleblower claim here. Um, Nicole, I'm curious, does Sam Page just have the right to fire uh, this this director if he chooses to fire this director? Does it matter that she's over 40? Um, does it matter that she's an African-American woman? Um, can he just get rid of somebody if he
4: feels like their service to him is done? So, okay, that is like the question of the century, right? So those things matter if they were, and it's not even contributing factor anymore. It has to be, and I forget what the buzzword is. Sorry, it's on the tip of my tongue, but it has to be, um, for lack of a better word, a major factor in um, letting someone go. So it can't just be, oh, I am in a protected class. It has to be that I was fired because I am in a pre- protected class. So um, it has to actually be discriminatory intent. Okay. So she may
2: have some trouble winning this lawsuit if she can't make the whistleblower thing work um, as far as this claim goes.
4: Yeah, I mean, I haven't heard any evidence
2: of uh, discrimination Yeah. At this point, she has she has made some comments that she feels that he doesn't respect the voices of of black women. I think she she said something um, soon after she was terminated. But I haven't seen that argument fleshed out so much. Bill, I don't know if that ends up appearing much in the lawsuit. Uh, It
3: it appears it it does appear some in in the lawsuit. Uh, uh, But as Nicole says, the Missouri legislature has made it harder to win whistleblower. suits uh you're requiring more proof and and less uh in the way of uh damages so She's going to have a little bit of a difficulty, I think. So
2: speaking of St. Louis County politics, obviously Dr. Page is up for re-election this November, and that tends to be the time this kind of thing comes to the, the f- forefront, and so we want to make that caveat there. But he is under fire for something completely unrelated, and that's something that seldom gets a person in trouble these days, and that is that he has worked some shifts as a medical doctor. Now, we all knew that he was an anesthesiologist, but most people were under the impression that he had given that up. Um, And it now turns out that he does work a four hour evening shift once a week and then he works one weekend shift per month. Now, the county charter says he shall devote his entire time to duties of the office. That's a direct quote. Dave Roland, could he be in trouble for this?
1: Uh, It it is it is possible. So I think that what he's done does technically violate the charter. I think Mm -hmm. the question is um, whether there is an enforcement mechanism. Um, so with with certain actions that a, a public official takes while they're in office, um, there is a specified uh, consequence for violating um, a, a prohibition. I, I don't know if the St. Louis County Charter creates that kind of a um, an enforcement mechanism. If it does, I think that he he's definitely running a risk there.
4: Nicole, thoughts on this? Yeah, I actually dug into the charter a little bit because there was a part that I think concerned me a little bit more about this, which was the conflict of interest section. And um, there is an actual part of the charter that says, you know, it's unlawful to engage in any professional activity that places you in a position of conflict. And it is quite possible that if he is in charge of sort of doling out pandemic money, You know, to various healthcare organizations and then he works for one of those healthcare organizations that that could be a conflict of interest. And that part of the charter actually does have a remedy in there, um, which, you know, is monetary. And so, you know, I think that part of the charter, I mean, obviously, as Dave said, that is a technical violation of the charter that he's not spending all of his time you know, working as a county executive. But the conflict of interest part, I think, is even more concerning.
2: And, and Nicole, this would be like a monetary fine that he would face for,
4: for... Well, it says it says the Saint, that St. Louis County shall be entitled to recover from the employee um, an amount equal to any money that the transaction involves. So it's almost like he has to give his pay from the hospital back. It's
2: not oh, entirely clear, but yeah. The, hey, anesthesiologists, they are much better paid than politicians. This, this seems terrifying. <laughs> right. Bill, thoughts on this? <laughs> well, I, I right. mean, I
3: don't think it's quite as big a deal as as, as all that. I mean, I'm relying a little bit on, uh, there's a local government ethics lawyer by the name of Mike, Michael Downey. I actually went to, went to law school with him. And, and he has looked at some Missouri Supreme Court decisions that uh, interpret similar wording. And he says most of the opinions... Uh, say that as long as there's something doesn't conflict time-wise or purpose-wise, and usually it's okay to do that uh, work. Uh, I, I believe that pages has made clear that none of this is on his, the time that he would be devoting to being county executive. Um, so I, I don't think it's as big a problem as maybe uh, Fitch and, and his political opponents are saying the idea. That there should be a special prosecutor appointed to look into this is, I think,
0: ridiculous.
2: I do want to share, since again, this is somebody who's up for re-election. It's just about a week out. um, (laughs) That what Page's spokesman has said about this, he told KSDK. Dr. Page's work as a physician happens during his private time, and being a physician helps inform his decisions in response to this pandemic. Dr. Page works the occasional shift to maintain his medical license and credentialing, so that he can go on a mission trip once a year. His last mission trip was January 2020 to the Dominican Republic. Um, now, it is worth mentioning that KSDK asked the state board that oversees licenses whether seeing patients is a requirement, and they said no, but they do require physicians to complete 50 hours of continuing education every two years, so this might go to that. Dave?
1: Yeah, I wanted to toss in one additional idea, and it goes back to something that I said in the first segment. Um, there's, there are separate questions as to whether a particular act might violate uh, a law or a charter, um, and then there's the question of whether it's constitutional. Um, there are any number of state statutes or, or local ordinances that restrict what public officials can do in office, or may restrict who gets to serve in public office. Um, but that is a separate question from whether it's constitutional to enforce those. I think that um, you know, if <laughs> if Dr. Page wanted to challenge the constitutionality of uh, this restriction, I think that you know, there's there's a good argument to be made that uh, they can't constitutionally enforce it. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, as far as the the plain language of the charter, um, it does specify that he's to devote all of his time to serving as the county executive.
2: And that honestly seems like kind of terrifying in this era where we're available 24-7. Like, it, it mm-hmm. feels like maybe a relic of back when you couldn't reach people after hours if they were at the office. But as you say, that language is somewhat plain. Nicole?
4: Yeah, I mean, I go back to my time when I was a government employee. I mean, I was a federal prosecutor, and they honestly dictated not only what I was allowed to do um, with my own personal time in terms of I wasn't allowed to get a second job, but I also had to ask permission for certain things that I was going to volunteer for and things like that because – You know, there's the Hatch Act, and you can't get involved in political activities if you're going to say you're doing it as a federal prosecutor. And so I think these rules are in place for a reason. And, I, you know, I'm putting all politics aside and what party you're in. You know, these rules are there for a reason. And he came out and he said he did not violate any part of the the charter. And I think if you look at it, there is a black letter violation of the charter here. And I think, it, you know, if you're going to walk this line, you probably should be a little more careful.
2: Hmm. We're talking today to our legal roundtable. That is Nicole Garofsky. Uh We're also joined by Dave Roland and Bill Freyvogel. We need to take a quick break, but you will want to stay tuned because we, when we come back, we are going to talk about a case I keep promising we're going to stop talking about, but I cannot help myself. We need to talk about the McCloskeys. This is a new legal issue, and I need to have the panel figure out whether there's anything to this one. So this is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. We're talking today to our legal roundtable about a host of issues, um, some election attacks that we're seeing if they hold up to scrutiny. We're also checking in with what our politicians are up to, how it fits with the law. Our panel today is Nicole Gorovsky of Gorovsky Law, Bill Freivogel, who's a professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale as well as an attorney, and last but not least, Dave Rowland, who's the director of litigation at the Freedom Center of Missouri. And Dave, before I get to the McCluskeys, the promised case I've got to talk about today, um, you said that this this case that we were just talking about here, um, that this reminds you of the lawsuit against State Representative Nick Schroer. Now, he recently won around, or maybe won the whole thing in a lawsuit that claimed he had secretly moved out of the district he represents in Jefferson City. Where do you see the connection between that and the problems that the county executive is, is facing over allegations that he's not devoting himself full time to his job?
1: So the broad issue there is um restrictions that are placed on public officials uh so uh the st louis county charter puts a restriction on its officials and and at least insinuates that if you violate this restriction there are going to be consequences that flow um the state constitution puts restrictions on who gets to serve as a state representative and uh, there are consequences if you for example leave the district that you are supposed to be representing uh now the, THE THING IS I'M IN AN INTERESTING POSITION BECAUSE ALTHOUGH uh, I ADVOCATE VERY STRONGLY THAT THE CONSTITUTION HAS TO BE ENFORCED uh, PROPERLY AT THE SAME TIME, uh, I THINK THAT YOU SOMETIMES HAVE CONFLICTS BETWEEN, SAY, A COUNTY CHARTER OR A STATE CONSTITUTION AND THE FEDERAL CONSTITUTION. Um, and, AND I'VE ARGUED THIS, YOU KNOW, AT THE MISSOURI SUPREME COURT. I LOST, BUT I ARGUED uh, THAT ULTIMATELY IT OUGHT TO BE UP TO THE VOTERS TO DECIDE WHO THEY WANT TO REPRESENT THEM. AND IF THE VOTERS are worried about the idea of dr page spending time uh working as an anesthesiologist while serving as a county executive they can express that with their votes same thing with representative sure is you know if his constituents decide that they insist on him living in their jurisdiction, um, that's up to them to decide. But if they're comfortable with him living somewhere else while also representing their district, as far as I'm concerned, um, they should be allowed to make their decision. At the federal level, uh, we have seen, you know, we've seen congressional districts perfectly willing to elect people who have never lived a day in their district before the election um, because they think this is the person that's going to represent me best. Um, You know, if we're going to claim to be a democratic republic, let the people choose. Don't put these artificial restrictions on them.
4: Nicole Gorovsky, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean I'm not sure I want to get into, you know, the huge philosophical difference between libertarians and Democrats, but I will a tiny bit. So <laughs> so you know, I in an absolutely perfect world where everybody told the truth and, and everybody was you know, um, you know, disclosing everything about themselves, I would totally agree with Dave, but unfortunately that doesn't happen. And so I think that's where we have to have some regulations. And, you know, so the regulation in this case did exist. And, um, you know, to bring it back to what actually happened in this case, the judge found that there were conflicting facts about where Mr. Schroeder was going to, to live. And they just found, the judge just found that the facts weren't sufficient or enough to show that there was a violation of, you know, the regulation here. Basically he found Mr. Schroeder to be credible and it was a bench trial. A judge found Mr. Schroeder to be credible. And um, that he maybe didn't intend to ever give up residency in St. Charles County, so there was no uh, election violation here.
2: I, I know some Democrats who feel that we are about to live in Dave Rowland's libertarian paradise because they <laughs> they feel that now this ruling, they feel that boy, how can this guy be credible on this issue? It seems so clear. He moved, and yet the judge has said he can he can keep his office. But Dave, uh, you wanted to respond to Nicole.
1: So Nicole is right. That's what the trial judge said. What I found really interesting about the trial judge's ruling is he basically said that um, the representative demonstrated an intent to continue representing his district. Um, He didn't say anything about where he actually lives. And from what I understand, the transcript showed that he couldn't recall spending a night at this house within his district that – that he allegedly was still using as his residence and you know as far as i'm concerned that that should be pretty conclusive. But the trial court said, well, yeah, but he still intended to represent his district. I, I don't know that that's the standard. If they wanted to appeal that, I think that there might be a decent basis for appeal. But I don't know that they're going to. Yeah, probably We're working on too a really late, short time frame. Too late yeah. for
2: this election. But but yeah, Dave Rowland, this is the world you wanted. You're getting it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> From your lips to God's yeah. ears. <laughs> and and Dave, In
3: Dave's uh, ideal world, we don't also have to get rid of term limits.
2: Yes, actually. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. (laughs) And actually, I I also know a lot of people on the other side of the aisle who feel like they've been a a huge mistake. But that is an argument for the other another day. We'd have to find someone to argue in favor of term limits. I don't know if we have that person here. Um, (laughs) Hey, look, since we're talking about hot button issues, I do need to talk about the McCluskies. They just could not stay out of the news. Bill, why are they back in the
3: spotlight? I think they want more than fifteen minutes of fame. <laughs> <It's> so true. <laughs> they, they're back in the spotlight because they uh, they they took a photo that uh, Bill Greenblatt, a UPI reporter, had taken of their uh, pointing guns at demonstrators famously last summer uh, before the Republican National Convention. Uh, you know, these were demonstrators on their way to uh, the mayor's house, uh, walking past the, the McCloskey's mansion on portland place and they pointed guns at them and have since uh, you know have some charges but so they made they they took this photo that bill greenblatt had taken of them pointing the guns and made it their christmas card and uh and then the, there was a video the other day by a black lives matter videographer uh of them you know who was uh, screaming uh, profanity at them as they picked up their christmas cards and uh, uh mccloskey gave one of the cards to the uh the videographer uh, <laughs> has a present, um, it's, but it's, uh, can so, they
2: not do that? I mean, this is their image. Uh, you know, it, they're the people being photographed. It's a famous photo. <laughs> can they the use it in their Christmas card?
3: The image is clearly, uh, you know, something that would be the uh, be owned by UPI, uh, and uh, so UPI apparently, according to the to Joe Holloman and the post-dispatch UPI is thinking about sending a cease and desist letter. Um, would they have to retract so then,
2: their Christmas cards? How would it work <laughs> for something that's already been printed?
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think they, they, probably, it, it's, they probably are not going to have a problem. I mean, there is something called, um, well, it, I mean, this case reminds me copyright-wise of the, there's sort of a famous case involving the Obama Hope poster, where uh, a poster maker made this Obama hope poster uh, uh, based on an a- I think it was an AP photo of Obama giving a speech, and it it turned out you know he had he had just followed the photo you know precisely, and eventually he the poster maker ended up having to pay AP for the rights to that to that picture. But, you know, this is different in a way because, I mean, it's not like the McCloskeys are trying to make any money, money off of this Christmas card. So I think it would, you know, so definitely I, I think it would be most likely within what's called a fair use exception the copyright. Uh, so I, I think I think they should be able to send out their Christmas card without having to worry too much about wow, it. Wow, Bill
2: takes the side of the McCluskeys. I never thought this would happen. But I mean, you do, you make a good point there. They're not trying to make money off of this. To some extent, they're commenting on their fame. Isn't that an element of, of fair use? If you're, you're commenting on the copyrighted material, you have some ability to use it. Bill, I think we're <laughs> right. geeking out on media law, and everyone else we may be thinking we're crazy. Um, <laughs> well, look, there's another case I wanted to talk about, and that involves one of my favorite St. Louis resident, uh famous St. Louis restaurants. That is Lona's Little Eats. Uh, they're suing DoorDash. That's a food delivery company. Now, if you search for Lona's Little Eats on DoorDash's platform, or even if you Google Luna Lona's Little Eats and and delivery, um, you might see the menu for Lona's Little Eats. But then, as you proceed trying to order, it tells you Lone Little Eats is closed. Well, it's not closed. It simply hasn't signed up with DoorDash. Uh, Nicole, what kind of case is the restaurant now making um, due to this this listing on the DoorDash website?
4: So they're basically accusing DoorDash of publishing false and deceptive information. And I kind of like this case because, you know, I I think they should stick it to DoorDash for doing something like this. I, you know, this kind of thing has happened to me in when I've been on DoorDash, I'm looking for my favorite restaurant. And, you know, they say the same thing, it's unavailable. And I totally thought my favorite restaurant had shut down. And that's totally not okay. It is false and deceptive information. And, um, you know, if a company doesn't want to participate with DoorDash, I don't think they should have to. And basically what they're doing is stealing the company's information. I'm going to call it stealing because I think that might be the right word. They're stealing the company's information and their menu, and they're putting it on DoorDash, and they're acting like you can go through with an order. And then once you finish your entire order, the app comes up and says that it's unavailable because you're not in their delivery area, when the truth is that company just hasn't participated with DoorDash and they're not part of their delivery system at all. And so that's incredibly deceptive. And I think there is a good case here.
2: We've talked to some local uh, restaurants about this on this show, and and they're very wound up. They say it's very hard to keep removing themselves from these platforms because they kind of pop up. You know, they find the menu because the restaurant has put it on the website. They find it. They create a listing. In some cases, the restaurateurs will call multiple times trying to get it down. And and it is deceptive. I've been fooled by this as well. Dave, do you think they have a chance for a class action on this? I know that's always the hardest thing with these suits is, is proving that there's a class.
1: Um yeah, I think so. And it's for exactly the reason that you just pointed out is is this has affected a number of different establishments. I mean, it, it, it is a recurring problem, it's a widespread problem. And so I think that the likelihood of being able to certify a class is is probably pretty good. Um, as far as the you know the likely outcome of the lawsuit, that I'm not as certain of um because I believe we're dealing with california law um and and i think that that may be number one i'm not an expert in california law and so i'm really not qualified to to speak on it but but number two um i think that doordash could at least reasonably argue um that hey look we're just letting people know what restaurants are out there and we shouldn't be punished for um you know showing their menu options uh, i think that may be a little bit Suspicious when uh, they're not just showing the options, they're at least purporting to let people begin an order and then, oh, wait, no, you can't do that. And and that may then uh, divert people to the businesses that are partnering with DoorDash. And so there, there may be a legitimate claim there. I just don't know. Um, but I do think that they're going to be able to get a, a class certified.
2: Hmm. Well, it'll be very interesting to see what, what happens on this. I know there's some local restaurants who are hoping there'll be a class and this class can actually stop this process. Um, as our legal roundtable uh, enters its final 10 minutes here, there are a number of, of other cases I want to see if we have time to touch on. Um, none of these are quite as big as where we started, but I think there's there's some interesting legal issues here. And one of them involves a 29-year-old St. Louis woman who shot and killed the man who had just carjacked her. This is according to KSDK. The victim told police she was robbed as she was returning to her car. She got her gun. She shot the suspect once in the stomach before he fled in her car. Officers found the victim's stolen car along with a man inside who'd been shot in the stomach. He was taken to a hospital. He was pronounced dead. Um, Homicide detectives interviewed her. They ended up letting her go. Uh, Nicole, you used to be a prosecutor. Do you think there's a good chance this woman is going to get charged for this shooting?
4: I don't know. I mean, this is another one of those cases where I really want more facts. So I don't understand how if he was carjacking jacking her, then how did she get in the car to get her gun? I'm a little confused on that. And then, you know, there is something, you know, there's obviously self-defense. Everyone knows that one. And then there's defense of property. But, the, you know, you really have to get into the nitty-gritty there. You have to know exactly what was happening at that moment. Was she in imminent danger? If the person was... Uh, fleeing at that point, then it's possible then she doesn't have those defenses. But if the person was, you know, putting her in imminent danger or if there's a, you know, a property issue going on, then it's possible that she's got those defenses. So it really is going to come down to exactly what was happening in that moment. And again, since you know, the defendant gets the, um, you know, the presumption of innocence and you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, if if we don't ever get to know all of those details, then she's not going to get charged. Dave Rowland, what do
2: you think about this one?
1: Um, I, I definitely agree that it's going to be a fact intensive case. Um, I think that the, the big question here is how much time elapsed between when she was removed from the car and when she got the gun and fired the shot. Um, you know, because if, if she had just been thrown out, you know, she could argue that she still was an imminent threat, you know, uh, that, that she was uh, in fear of her life. But if she was removed from the vehicle and she had time to go somewhere else, retrieve a gun and come back, then at least arguably she wasn't currently in fear of her life. Um, But then I think it raises a different issue. and, And Nicole pointed towards this when she said defensive property. So the Missouri constitution expressly authorizes the use of firearms in defense of someone's property. Um, the language that it uses is that you have, uh, every citizen has the right to keep and bear arms in defense of their home person, family, and property. Hmm. Um, and that that right shall not be questioned. So, um, over the years, courts have tended to say that, um, if you are, uh, say, shooting after something has been stolen. Let's say someone stole something from you and the person is running away. Um, courts in many states have said that is no longer a justifiable use of force. Um, if they are in the act of taking something from you, then you might justifiably be able to use deadly force. But once they have taken it and are on their way to somewhere else, um, that's not appropriate. Uh, so, so it may depend on the timing of the gunshot it may depend on um whether the the person was already driving away or whether they were still sitting in the driveway um you know and these are things we just don't know mm-hmm. but um but i'll say from from a constitutional perspective um i think that arguably someone i think the constitution was intended to allow someone to use deadly force if they were having property taken from them so think for example back um into 1820 when the state You know uh first came into existence um if someone stole a horse then it was a serious serious offense uh because horses were difficult to replace they were uh, a major means of transportation and and um and so people were allowed to shoot horse thieves uh even if they were trying to escape now we're now in the 21st century it is a whole different situation, and courts have been treating it differently. But I think if we're if we're going with the original intent of the constitutional provision, um, possibly people would be permitted to fire shots even if um, the thief or the burglar is is retreating or leaving with their ill-gotten gain.
2: Bill, uh, what do you think about that? Is is that how how you think this could fall?
3: I don't know as much about the uh, shooting horse thieves as as Dave. uh, You know, maybe that would come into play as an original interpretation of of the Constitution. But I I agree with Dave and Nicole that we need to know a lot more facts about sort of how this all played out. Sure.
2: Well, this actually segues right into something else I wanted to mention. This involves our federal government. They were in town a few weeks ago touting Operation Legend. This is their crime-fighting surge. They say they cut the number of killings in the city over the last eight weeks by 49% percent um i did not realize that st louis's crime problem was solved and i'm not a hundred percent sure that i'm buying this bill any thoughts on on operation Legend's well, smashing success on the streets of st louis
3: well i'm all for 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 dealing directly with the homicide problem in the city of st louis and and uh, but i thought there were a lot of problems with that that press conference i mean for one thing uh, you know reporters like myself aren't too pleased when uh uh, you know, attorney general and U.S. attorney come in and and they don't won't take any any questions. You know, you know questions like, uh, you know, aren't you good? You know, what what are your you know your 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 times of comparison and what are these cases about and why isn't the uh, the the state prosecutor of the city of St. Louis here at the press conference, Kim Gardner? Um, and, uh, you know, why is it that we've got uh, Missouri Highway Patrol and Missouri Assistant Attorneys General, uh, you know, handling these cases? And how does this fit into the to a conservative uh, philosophy uh, of of leaving you know law enforcement to uh, to to the local authorities?
2: David, is that a concern you share? You're here more from the, the right side, a libertarian side of this argument. Um, are the feds wrong to yeah. even be here?
1: Uh, so arguably from a libertarian perspective, I would say, yes, um, law enforcement is supposed to be a state and local affair. Um, now to be sure, um, federal agents can enforce federal laws, but but ultimately I think that the proper approach here is to focus on state and federal law enforcement. I want to point out that the Missouri Constitution has something to say about this too. It says that the people of the state have the inherent sole and exclusive right to regulate the police forces within the state. Um, and I'm- so that gets that gets called into question when the federal government comes in and starts intervening.
2: i got to go to our uh, former federal prosecutor in our final 30 seconds here. Nicole, uh, do they have a right to be here doing what they're doing?
4: Well, I mean, I I certainly, they have a right to do anything that has to do with federal jurisdiction. Whether they have a right to do anything else is a, a different issue. But I think what's interesting about Barr is that, you know, it's, very strange to compare crime statistics within the same year because crime ebbs and flows during the year. And um, so I think some of these statistics are suspect. I think also, you know, some of the statistics are taking credit for some initiatives that may have been in place before the feds came here. And so, you know, we have to take all of this with a big grain of salt. And that's
2: the perfect note to end this month's legal roundtable on. So Nicole Garofsky of Garofsky Law, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And Dave Roland of the Freedom Center of Missouri, uh, thank you. Always a pleasure. And last but not least, Bill Freyvogel, Professor of Journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks.